Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we are responding to uh, several emails that we've received about the church's early uh, participation or involvement in Freemasonry. Um, Now, when I first read this, now it is uh, time for the uh, March Madness season. When I first read it, all I could think about was obviously George Mason and their run to the Final Four in 2006. Which was a great boon to their university. Oh, right? my gosh. I mean, all of a it's sudden, tremendous. I think, I remember reading some story that, like, uh, inquiries for enrollment, like, quadrupled over the next year simply because they almost made it to the championship. Our, our goal is to actually turn this into a sports podcast. Michigan State, uh, North Carolina, Wichita State, when they were good, go Shockers. UConn, and then they lost to Florida in the Final Four. Very exciting, thrilling run, really. Yeah, it was It was, It was. was great. Um, pretty sure that people asking weren't concerned about sports history from I, 17 there was, years there, ago. In the context, I believe that they were. Fun fact. Right, it so the only that, reason they cared about <laughs> Freemasonry at all. Well, the only reason we're talking about it is because it reminded me of George Mason. Right. And I said, Garrett, we've got to talk about about this. And Literally almost all of the topics we cover on this podcast are because Richard said, hey, let's do this. And I say, I don't want to do that. And then there we are. There's sure Pick enough, there we were picking yeah. blueberries. Um, they're, they're, uh, fun fact, it appears that George Mason wasn't a Freemason. So that's a perfect lead into... Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, you could kind of get like a, a, a little memory game where you flip it over with a Mason. No. Nope. No. No. So um, I'm not entirely sure where to start on this because... Uh, no doubt we probably have uh, at least one or two Masons listening. And so as I describe uh, your uh, the history of your uh, uh, belief system, sorry about that. Um, and uh, you'll have to get your own podcast if you want uh, the views of, of Masonry more deeply developed. But so Masonry is pretty weird to people now. Um, right. Part, and part, I think I think that's part of the question, right? No, it's that like, is. It right? seems like, hey, this is such a weird it's thing. It's a weird thing because why is the church connected it's to it? Secret, yeah. And I don't really know anyone who is a Mason, or there's one weird guy that I did know, and he was a Mason. And then I saw the Da Vinci Code, you know, things like that. Like, and so part of the problem is we live in a, in a completely different culture than even our grandparents lived in, and and back then it was very commonplace even in the earlier, you know, in the mid 20th century to have many different kinds of civic organizations that people belong to charitable ones. I mean, so what I know all these things still exist. So I know we're going to get about 75 emails because I said they don't exist. Oh, you just made all the Kiwanis. Yeah, exactly. No, seriously. The lions Lions club, Club, the elks club, lodge, you know I mean? Things like that, that these like, uh, fraternal or, 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 you know, some as they're open to both men and women, uh, organizations really kind of filled this like both social and charitable, uh, need in the country, but they also were ecumenical in the sense that, well, if I, you know, I might be a, 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 a Democrat and Bill might be a Republican, but when we're at the Lions Club, we're both just trying to do charity, right? So, Civic organizations, they've existed for a long time for that very reason. They exist to try to bridge the gaps of society to provide a kind of, of, of I mean, a leveling in the sense that, that people from different backgrounds are united in the same cause. Well, social groups like that, especially like where I, you know, I'm going to the lodge on, you know, on, on Friday night, that, that, that they've really kind of gone away in the information age. I know they all still exist. So if you belong to one, I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about your grandkids who won't belong to one because it won't exist by then. Um, it the, the reality is in order to be part of a social group, I don't need to go join, you know, 
the Kiwanis. And I, if you if you are a member again, that's great. I'm not saying don't join it, but people don't feel the need to. I can go join a Facebook group, feel like I'm connected to people around the country, and you know perhaps for a charitable purpose or, or whatever. So that's the the first hardest part about discussing this is it's very difficult to think of a world that's that's different than the one you live in. In the world you live in, if millions upon millions of people were a member of something, the only legitimate thing that you can think of in your mind is they could be members of a church or they can be members of a political party. Those are the two things legitimately that you can, that's not weird, right? Um, I guess maybe the AARP. Um, but uh, the, the, the reality is in, in the 19th century and, and obviously in, their, in the 20th century, these kinds of civic groups are, are far more popular. And, and so to kind of give you an idea of, of how things shift, let me just use this as a bad example. <laughs> I grew up in scouting. I grew up with some legendary scoutmasters um, on so, so many campouts. And uh, you love camping. Yeah, I, I, there's a reason why I, I compare camping to, to Protestant hell. Uh, I mean, it's, it's terrible. I feel like no one really wants to go and that even when they're there, they're pretending that it's great, but the whole time they're like, yeah, I just slept on a rock and I just ate dirt and I can't wait to freeze to death. This is wonderful. How much did we pay to get here? Anyway, um, so I think that I, I, I attribute that back to having, you know, we camped a lot. And so I think I got to the point where I was like, you know what? You know what's better than being outside in the middle of the snow? My house. You know what's better than sleeping on the ground? My bed. Anyway, uh, Richard, I'm sure you also grew up as a scouter. Oh yeah, yes. no, I've I uh, I have several fewer digits than I should from Klondike derbies yeah. gone poorly. Right, and you already don't have as many as you should. That's right. right. So, That's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so the the reality is, scouting was an incredibly gigantic part of our young lives, and I would guess for most of the people listening, uh, the, scouting was a big part of their families' lives. It just was. Well, now the church isn't affiliated with scouting anymore. And there are very few relatively church members in America that are still, you know, pushing on with scouting, even though the church is no longer affiliating with it. Well, think about what your grandkids will think about scouting. Your kids right now, I mean, my kids right now, they at least were affiliated with it. I mean, Kai did Cub Scouts and Riker was in Scouts before it, it ended. But what will their kids think about scouting when they see pictures of their dad dressed up in this quasi-military uniform with a bandolero of 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 uh, uh, of, uh, of of merit badges strung across the the front uh, with a a, a neckerchief, you know, uh, and uh, what what will they think? And as you try to describe that to them, you could go ahead with that. You you try to describe that. No, we'd like put these uniforms on. Was it like the military? No, no, we just put them on. And then, well, what are all those badges? Oh, well, we would go like do things and they'd give us this patch and we'd sew it on. Um, why don't you just like watch a YouTube video and then you'd know how to do it? No, no, it's different. It, you know, I mean, it's actually pretty difficult to describe especially to someone who has no common frame of reference. And so scouting to people 70 years from now, 50 years from now, isn't just going to seem foreign. It's going to seem weird bordering on crazy. And yet when scouting was at its heights in the United States, um, really prior to, you know, the various scandals that broke across it in the late, you know, the late 20th and early 21st century, it wasn't a weird thing to be a boy scout at all. It was, it wasn't weird. No one was like, can you, can you believe that guy was a boy scout? What, what, I mean, he's obviously a serial killer. You know what I mean? Like that, that it, it was millions upon millions of men and boys were members of scouts. And I'm not even talking about the girl scouts, which, you know, is still in existence. Right. But again, millions of, of, of women and girls are in the girl scouts. It's not 
crazy in the mid 20th century. So, but even growing up in Western Idaho, where, you know, growing up, it was about 15% LDS where we grew up ish, plus or minus. You didn't, it wasn't just LDS. Oh no. Like everyone was scouts. Yeah. You know, the the Lutheran church, very affiliated with with scouting. Yeah. Yeah. Scouting was a big deal. And it was in that sense, ecumenical, right? It was a, you, you went to a boy scout jamboree and there would be Lutherans and Methodists and Catholic, you know, troops there. And, and again, that, that sounds totally normal to anyone who lived through it 50 years from now, when someone's looking at pictures of great grandpa wearing his Eagles, you know, uniform, it's going to seem weird. And so one of the first things you have to understand as we discuss masonry is the fact that there was an organization called Freemasonry is in and of itself going to be weird to you as the listener, unless you happen to be a Mason. And again, if you are, I apologize. Time to get your own podcast and tell everyone about Masonry. Um, but so I, I think you need to you need to you need to start with that understanding. This is going to seem weird to me because I actually don't even have anything that's comparable. I mean. Boy Scouts is like the closest thing comparable you can find where if you lived in Utah and you were, you know, active in in the church, right? Almost everyone you knew was in some way affiliated with with scouting. They the the, the leaders were scout, you know, had been scouts, all the youth were relative were scouts, but even outside of that, scouting was everywhere and there wasn't anything weird about it. It was just what people did. It was a way to, you know, keep kids off the streets and whatnot, that kind of stuff. So why do I spend all that time describing? Well, because as I go in to discuss this, our knee jerk reaction to anything that's unfamiliar to us is to attribute some kind of nefarious or negative aspect to that. It's human nature. It's human nature. When you find out something that you didn't know before that greatly conflicts with your current life, culture, and ideas, it's human nature to push back on it and say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not okay with that. And so that's important to understand. Masonry itself has multiple um, origin stories. It's almost, I get, it sounds like we're doing a Marvel movie at this point. Yeah, yeah. That's right. yeah this is a prequel to the prequel. Um, it, what, um, what someone says the origin of Freemasonry is, differs depending on who you talk to at least ostensibly ostensibly um masons claimed in the uh, 18th century so it, the the first modern masonic lodges are formed in 1717 in in, in europe in, in england and in, in scotland right um they have their origin with the guilds that were created in the in the the Middle Ages of stonemasons. Okay, that's where they get the term mason, stonemason. Again, this is all ostensibly because depending on who you're talking to, there are a lot of people that would say, well, there's absolute evidence that that's not the case. And there are other people like, look at all this great evidence for the fact that it existed. But we know that guilds existed in, in, in medieval Europe. And in fact, they were incredibly powerful. Well, why would that in any way affect Masons? Well, if I show up to work on, you know, the Notre Dame Cathedral that you're hiring me out for, and I tell you I am, you know, a, an incredible stone worker, and I've been working on on Masonry for 20 years, how exactly do you know whether or not I have been? I mean, what are you going to call and check my references on the phone that doesn't exist for the guy who died in the plague last week? The reality <laughs> is you have no way of checking, right? I mean, how could you possibly check? So at least, again, uh, let me say at least reportedly, reputedly, that, that what they would say is that they developed a series of both code phrases or code words and handshakes or symbols to demonstrate to another Mason from another place. When you show up to work there, I'm actually a Mason. And by the way, you can tell by what handshake I know, what level of Mason I am. Am I someone who just like built one stone house or am I someone who put up St. Peter's Basilica, right? They're not the same thing. So that's at least the reported, uh, 
history of of it. Now, among that, these these masons and these guilds, there there came to be the claim that the 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 handshakes, the symbols, their code words that they actually dated all the way back to Hiram Abiff, who was the supplier of you know the cedars for Solomon's temple in, in in Solomon's temple. And so there's this ancient claim to what is a a much more modern organization. May, like I said, Freemasonry as we know it today with free Freemasonic lodges, historians can only trace that origin to 1717. If you talk to a Mason, they will say, yes, I know that those organizations were formally created in 1717, but they actually date all the way back to Solomon's temple. And they've just been handed down and handed down and handed down and handed down. Um, you'll find most people in the historical community rejecting that idea. And, you, you know, honestly, you'll find many Masons rejecting that idea. Uh, for a Mason to believe that they are a part of something important, they don't need to prove that it goes all the way back to Solomon's temple. Okay. So it, this is the most boring one we've ever done. No townships. Yeah. But even townships, I felt like, you know, we at least got to call Craig out a little bit on that. Yeah. And, and my, my brother-in-law. Yeah. And now I feel like unless you are currently a Mason and you're already writing me an email, dear Garrett, how dare you talk about Masons? Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know. That's a good idea. Well, so one of the favorite things that I think that we've we've picked up on this episode is that moving forward, anytime that you get a complaint, you just tell them to start their own podcast. If you're so smart, <laughs> if you're so smart, and you're, and you're so no, no, smart. if you're, look, if you're so smart, Kiwanis, why don't you start your own Kiwana podcast? I'm tired of you Shriners riding around. <laughs> On your little car, little Elkhart Cora, and 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 giving me the business, but the reality is, uh, I'm not a specialist on on masonry. No, but I, I think mean, that that's. Yeah, I think I, I am not a mason, and so I don't want anyone to think that you know. Look, don't take everything I say as the gospel's truth, um, but I can speak to it from a historical perspective, and and, and so, in England and Scotland, in the eight in the 18th century. After these lodges were formed, now, like most um, civic organizations, the people who join most charitable or civic civic organizations would would come from the more middle to upper class. Uh, that's not a commentary on the fact that, like, oh, poor people just don't care about helping other poor people. It's that. Well, that single mother is working three jobs. And so, yeah, she doesn't have Friday evenings free to also go down to the Lions Club. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's yeah, the reality of socioeconomics is that people with more money are able to have more leisure time and they're able to devote themselves more to these civic organizations. Obviously, that's not across the board. Obviously, there are uh, people who are working those three jobs and a part of, of uh, you know, and running the PTA. You know what I mean? There, there are certainly, you know, men and women that are like that. But um, just in general, it is it tends to be this civic organization that is, and it's a fraternal organization, meaning only men are allowed, although they do create multiple offshoot groups that are related to uh, Freemasonry, but for, for women and, and for children actually too. But, um, it, it tends to attract that group, right? So in, in England, we're looking at the middle class and upper, the upper class, but that aren't in any way affiliated with royalty. Now the United States doesn't have to really worry about royalty. Um, uh, once it's founded, you know, royalty is not our, our thing. Um, but uh, masonry is going to continue to expand from where it was in its colonial days in America. And, and you might think, what do you mean? What, what, do you, what are you even talking about? Well, so cities would create a lodge. Now, there are different types of masonry, right? There's Scottish, right? York, right? There's different types. And we're not going to get into all that. But essentially, in your city, you would have a Masonic lodge that would be established, generally there'd be some pretty good funding that would go into building that building that in many places would become 
one of the bigger or at least nicer meeting places in your community or your town because there were some fairly well-off people contributing to its construction, right? And then the other requirement to be a Mason um, was that you had to believe in God, essentially. And so it's designed from its inception to be this kind of ecumenical movement. When I use the term ecumenical, what I mean is bringing together people of different religious backgrounds. And and that that's a pretty big deal in, in the 18th and 19th century when people are virulent in their antagonism. I mean, look, Joseph Smith is telling you that these parties are so hotly contesting one another, right? And, and, and screaming at each other. You, you have people that, you know, you have Calvinist preachers condemning those with Arminian philosophies as leading people to, to hell by, by not accepting the, 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 uh, the absolute sovereignty of God. So in this incredibly divisive, religious and political world. I mean, this is going to come as a huge surprise to everyone, but in the 19th century, people were also divided over politics. I know it seems like it's only happened in the past five, 10 years, whatever. But in fact, people hated each other over politics in the 19th century too. So you have these, these, these things pulling the nation apart, whether it's arguments over things like slavery or tariffs or, 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 or political parties, you also have all of these religious arguments, you know, uh, anti-Catholicism, things like that. Masonry was seen as this way of kind of creating a, on a local level, an, an ecumenical, charitable organization for men that would bring together men from different religious faiths, right? So we have a Methodist who's a part of this Masonic Lodge and you know, he might be all day, uh, you know, all week arguing against that hyper Calvinist, uh, uh, Presbyterian that's his neighbor, but they both are members of the same Masonic lodge and the lodge itself will then at least usually, uh, dedicate itself to doing some type of good things in the community, not just providing a space for people to, to have meetings in the lodge itself, but then also, you know, Masons start orphanages, they contribute money to poor relief, things like that. And they can come from different backgrounds, right? So you have a, you know, a super rich, you know, millionaire early American who's a member of a lodge and another person in the lodge might just be, you know, a, a carpenter who, who's, who's just barely making it. In general, Masons tend to be middle to upper class people because those are the ones that have time for leisure, but there are poor people that are Masons and there's rich people there. You have incredibly educated people that are Masons and less educated people that are Masons. So you can see like any good civic group, one of the appeals to Masonry is that it appeals to a broad spectrum of people and it brings people together who wouldn't normally be together otherwise. In the 19th century, as there was more and more partisan divide politically, as there's more and more arguments about things in the early Republic, masonry becomes increasingly attractive to people as this kind of means of, of creating a community unity out of these people that had such differing political, philosophical, and religious beliefs. So masonry is on the move in early America. It's, it's growing pretty rapidly. Um, you know, I, as any Mason will be very proud to tell you, George Washington was a Mason, right? In fact, many early presidents were. I mean, Richard, did you have a, a list? Yeah, there of was a the, twist. Yeah, yeah. A list of like 20 some. It was a twist. What's the twist? twist? Actually, the twist is the twist. none of them were Masons. This whole thing's been a lie. That's the twist. <laughs> that was the twist. The twist was we from, shouldn't have recorded this episode From Rutherford B. Hayes to James Madison. I feel like if any of the presidents we name, you then have to explain to people who they are, then this, this is going to be a very unhelpful list. Well, if you have to explain James Madison, then you're worse at history than me. Right, right. Who is nope. James Madison? Father of the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so many early uh, uh, thirteen signers of the Declaration of, Independ- uh, of the Constitution are are Masons. So sometimes you'll hear people say things like, "Oh yeah, every founding father was a Mason." Well, that that's not true either, right? So yeah, is John Hancock a Mason? Absolutely, right? And I'm sure he wrote it in giant letters. Um, uh, but 
it's not accurate to say that nearly every founding father was Mason, but it is accurate to say that Masonry is fairly common, especially among upper class uh, Americans. It just is. I mean, one, you know, one thing that John Hancock and George Washington have in common is they aren't poor, right? They are, they are, uh, and in fact, they will be on opposite sides of the political divide. They might be together on the idea of independence, but John Hancock is absolutely opposed to the constitution of the United States. Well, as you might imagine, George Washington isn't right. So, so, Here's an example of two Virginians, both of them wealthy, one of them certainly from a more landed property like Washington was, Hancock more of an up-and-coming, I mean, some people might refer to him as a smuggler of sorts, but uh, uh, the, the reality is um, they, they come from two different histories in their background. They uh, agree very much on independence from Britain, but disagree very much on how strong the new American federal government should be, even though they're both from, from Virginia, right? Well, so the, uh, the, the reality is masonry is something that would actually unite those two, right? That we may not agree politically, but we can still go to the, to the lodge. Now, Masonic uh, ritual is, is one of the things that I think bothers people who are asking the question. Again, I'm not a mason. And in fact, Masons hold their rituals, their initiation rites to be secret. Um, and so, you know, again, a Mason might say to you, anyone who's telling you exactly what we do inside a Masonic Lodge is obviously not an actual Mason because no Mason's doing that. A Latter-day Saint might be able to feel a little bit of empathy for that, right? The person who's trying to tell you exactly what's going on inside the temple may not be the most, um, you know, religious Latter-day Saint that you've met, uh, given the fact that they're, that they're doing that. Right. So, um, in early America, Masonry is rapidly expanding, but then there starts to be this kind of pushback against it. There starts to be a problem. Masonry is seen as this elitist group. Um, and because the members know each other outside of their average everyday lives, it was very easy, especially for lower class people, to feel that Masons were conspiring to help each other. Oh, we both went in to to, for a bid on the contract to build that bridge. And I didn't get the bid, but it just so happens the guy who did is a Mason in the Masonic Lodge with this guy. There's some pushback from American religions. Several uh, Christian sects in America actually um, bar their members from joining Masonry, again, because it has these kind of quasi-religious overtones. In these Masonic lodges, part of what they would do is reenact scenes from the Old Testament. And uh, so it has this kind of religious uh, overview. And again, because Masons are claiming that their rituals are dating back to Solomon's temple. That's some of what their rituals and rites were, were doing. Being a Mason itself was more of this kind of fraternal organization, but the way that someone progressed through the stages of Masonry was these various rituals uh, that, that they would do. Again, this sounds incredibly crazy to someone today. Although I'm guessing that there's at least a few people listening who are members of sororities or fraternities who went through some initiation rituals who would say, oh, okay, I kind of understand. Um, by the time Joseph Smith is asking his questions in 1820, there is actually a pretty solid movement in the Northeast against masonry from people in the lower classes who see masonry as this kind of rich people's guild where they're constantly scratching one another's back. And then, of course, there's religious zealots who are totally opposed to masonry because it's using religious terminologies, but is not actually, it's not itself a religion or it's, 
you know, it's be, simply because it's secret. Any secret oath-bound organization must be evil is, is, is what the, uh, the cry is going to be. Um, the, the hotbed of this anti-Masonic sentiment in America, the, the place where it burns the hottest, is actually in upstate New York in, in the late 1820s, in 1828, 29, and 30. So um, there's actually a party that's formed called the Anti-Masonic Party, Anti-Masonic Party. Um, and, and they will actually win multiple local uh, uh, elections. This will intersect with Joseph Smith very directly. The people who are most opposed to Masons, the people who regarded them the most suspectly, were generally people who were rural and generally people who were less well-off. Well, you know, I just described Joseph Smith's family, right? I mean, they're rural farmers and they are you know, less well-off. It's a very kind way of saying that, isn't it? So Joseph Smith's like, all right, so this, this um, restoring this church, this is going really well for me. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to align another organization well no so that's exactly what i'm saying is it's actually the opposite in joseph's early life um in 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 palmyra the people who were aligned with the masonic group well who are those people well you know from our translation of the book of mormon uh series that you never listened to, but if you did, that you also forgot. But you should go back and listen to it. And if you go back and listen to it, that was back before we were using microphones that worked. The information was still just as poor. But um, uh, that Joseph was trying to get the Book of Mormon published between two separate competing Palmyra printers who hated one another. And what did they hate each other over? Aside from their economic differences, well, Egbert Grandin was pro-Masonic. He was not someone opposed to the Masonic movement. And Jonathan Hadley was adamantly opposed to Masonry. In fact, his paper's name is the Palmyra Freeman, meaning I'm free from Masonry and oath-bound organizations. They attack each other constantly in, in, in the newspaper. Um, since the Wayne Sentinel is a much bigger paper and Grandin's more established, he doesn't deign to attack Hadley as much as Hadley is attacking Grandin, but he's constantly attacking him. Um, Hadley himself was trained by the leader of the anti-Masonic movement in the United States. Um, he's uh, trained by Thurlow Weed. Thurlow Weed is one of the people that Joseph will actually go to to try to see if he will publish the Book of Mormon. And uh, weeds the head of this anti-Masonic party. So there's all kinds of rhetoric. And, and the rhetoric is surrounding things like that the Masons are, they are using their network of fraternities, how every town has a lodge, to enrich themselves. You know, that, that everyone has an inside job. I mean, look, whatever you think about banking regulations today, well, there weren't any then. And, and, there, there weren't there weren't any regulations of any kind that someone could easily you know help someone else out who was a brother in their fraternity happened all the time and so it led to people really protesting it in palmyra there are people that are masons but joseph smith and his family are not only not masons there is early indication that at least some of their persecution is emanating from Masons. Um, Joseph Smith writes a letter to the Colesville Saints on November 12th, 1830. And um, at the end of that uh, letter, he is going to leave a, a postscript. Um, Brother Hiram, beware of the Freemasons. McIntyre heard that you were in Manchester and he got out a warrant and went to your father's to distress the family. But Harrison, which we think is reference to Samuel Harrison Smith, 
Um, but Harrison overheard their talk and they said they cared not for the debt. If they could only obtain your body, they were there with carriages. Therefore beware of the Freemasons. This from yours, Joseph Smith, right? So this is an 1830 document. This is the church is, is only you know seven or eight months old at this point, And they haven't even made the determination that they're going to leave New York for Ohio yet, that all of that's still in the offing. In fact, the missionaries have been sent, but Joseph doesn't know yet that they've been wildly successful in Ohio on their way to, to, to preach to the native Americans. So you can kind of see that there's, that is certainly a negative sentiment towards masonry there. Um, at least the Masons in the Palmyra area seem to be kind of leading this kind of upper class, uh, attack on the Smiths on the basis of anti-Mormonism. Now that is, is not the only area that anti-Mormonism and look, if there's anything that's ecumenical in this world, it's not just masonry. The most ecumenical thing of the 19th century is hating Mormons. <laughs> it's them. Everybody does it. Everyone loves it. It's a great pastime. Um, it, the, the reality is, um, this Masonic issue, though, is going to play a factor even in one of our uh, another earliest conversion. Uh, after the Saints moved to, after they moved to uh, 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 Ohio, Joseph is going to be visited uh, by the strangest, one of the strangest converts he, he's he's ever talked to, and it happens to be W. W. Phelps. Well. Why is Phelps so strange? I mean, aside from the, you know, middle name's Wine, you know, I mean, William Wines Phelps. Um, uh, Phelps is going to describe his conversion this way, that he had started studying the Book of Mormon. He was a newspaper editor of the, uh, uh, the Ontario Phoenix, which was the Ontario County in New York, and that was in Canandaigua. So very nearby uh, Palmyra, Phelps is one of these, he's a newspaper writer in Canandaigua. Like Jonathan Hadley, Phelps is an anti-Masonic uh, writer. His newspaper is anti-Mason. It is, it is part of this movement to say Masons are wrong. We need to make Masonry illegal. It's this growing civic group that is doing all kinds of dastardly things or at the very least not giving a level playing field to everyone else. So he is going to explain in his newspaper what happens to him uh, regarding his investigation of, um, of, of the church. While I was in Palmyra, comparing the Book of Mormon with the Bible, he writes, to find out the truth and investigate the matter for public good. And then he has four dashes in his paper, meaning there are four people who did this, but he's not going to put their names because then they could maybe file some kind of slander suit, right? So this is common to just put dashes for the people. But, but anyway, these four people, members of the Presbyterian church and pretended anti-Masons, sent for their foolish clerk from Canandaigua and took me for a warrant and obtained a judgment against me on a balance of their account. So you have, you have Joseph warning Hiram in November of 18, uh, November of 1830, November 12th of 1830. Hey, the Masons are trying to use financial debts as an excuse to imprison you. So be careful you have a kind of a demonstrated similarity here with, with, with WW Phelps and in the same place. And only, I mean, look, the Canandaigua and the Palmyra Masons are going to be well known to one another. And it's really only in the space of another five months that the same thing is happening that as, uh, Phelps is investigating the church, he is arrested. Now, now, he's an anti-Masonic paper, and he's claiming these people were supposedly also anti-Masons. So on the one side, you have Masons trying to arrest Hiram, and now on the other side, you have anti-Masons are trying to arrest uh, uh, trying to arrest uh, Phelps. Anyway, let me go on with what he says. 
This was done after I had engaged a passage home and learning my family was sick. An execution was sworn out on the spot and I was hurried to jail in the course of a night where I shall stay 30 days for a double purpose. And then he's later going to explain that he was, uh, he was in prison uh, on the actions by a couple of Presbyterian traders. Trader as in they trade, not, not traitor, but trader. Uh, I trade goods. Presbyterian traders for a small debt for the purpose, as I was informed, of keeping me from joining the Mormons. Um, so now you have in this early period of the church, both people trying to persecute the church on the one side who are doing it from a Masonic position. And here you can see Phelps is so indignant because many Presbyterians were actually fairly militant opposed to Masonry as seeing it as, you know, essentially a corruption of the word of God. It's not a religion, but the fact that, it was this secret and oath bound organization meant, you know, nope, that's not only God's the only person you ever offer an oath to. Um, so you really see the churches on both sides of this, the churches on both sides of, uh, of this. And, and really what I mean is the most ecumenical thing in the world is, is hating Mormons. And so one thing that brings anti-Masons and Masons together. So in the early church, we don't, I don't have, I mean, maybe someone does and I don't, but I don't have a count of how many members of the church were Masons. My guess is very few because many of them are hailing from relatively poor circumstances. Many others are fervent pastors and religionists and look, pastors tended to not be Masons as much as, as, uh, your, your average business person was much more likely to be a Mason. So that's the background of the early involvement in Kirtland and in Missouri. There isn't really an attempt made to create a Masonic lodge in those towns, although there were existing Masonic lodges, but you don't have the same kind of organizational, you know, fear of them. In fact, Masonry kind of drops from the church's record until late 1841 and early 1842 in Nauvoo. And this is where I think Joseph Smith has made like a, I think they've made a very calculated decision. Well, we were in Kirtland and we got drove driven out. Uh, we were in Missouri and we got driven out. So we moved somewhere else in Missouri and we also got driven out. Um, there seems to be a conscious decision made with Nauvoo that Nauvoo was going to try to integrate itself into the state and the surrounding community as much as it possibly could. Whereas, you know, in Jackson County, they're thinking of building the city of Zion. You know, they're, they're planning on building the city of God there. In, in Nauvoo, there is a greater attempt to try to make Nauvoo look like other cities, meaning we're going to have a university in Nauvoo. We're going to have a, 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 a group of, um, that does drama and plays. We're going to have a band organization where people can come join, be part of the brass band. One of the other things they determine that is an ecumenical step to kind of opening doors for uh, Latter-day Saints in the wider community is we're going to establish a Masonic Lodge. Now, by 1842, antagonism towards masonry had died off a little bit. The anti-Masonic party had really just been a flash in the pan, 1828 through 1832, basically. And then it just kind of dissolves after that and, and becomes more part of the Whig party eventually. But, um, at any rate, the anti-Masonic movement it, it has died, but there's still a lot of antagonism towards masons still in many American cities. People who are upper to middle class as a means of demonstrating that they were now in this new class, they would try to join these lodges. And Nauvoo is no different. They try to organize a lodge. They, they get permission temporarily and then eventually permanently. And they will build a Masonic hall in Nauvoo. And that's actually where a lot of the church's meetings are going to take place after that. I mean, if you go to the Joseph Smith Papers website and do a search for the Masonic hall, there's all kinds of meetings that take place there, not just Masonic meetings. 
The Latter-day Saints no sooner start their lodge that they start to uh, elicit some complaints from fellow Masons. It's supposed to take essentially a lifetime to go from being a, you know, a newly joined initiate Mason to becoming a grandmaster. Like, I mean, a life, a slow and steady, demonstrated devotion to masonry and its causes over the course of your lifetime. And then when you're finally in your, you know, 70s, you're going to become, you know, a grandmaster or the next, the next lowest, right? Well, in, in Nauvoo, Hiram and Joseph are going to progress um, very rapidly through the ranks and essentially become uh, masters in a day. Um so this uh, is great because it places, you know, Joseph and, and Hiram can be master masons, but um, it is not what other lodges think is appropriate for masonry. So these other local lodges of masons in other towns. Joseph once, uh, uh, you know, said, uh, explaining masonry, he said, the great secret of masonry is that it is secret. Okay, that's not very helpful in getting Joseph Smith's ideals behind it. So when someone asks, was Joseph Smith a Mason? It really depends on when they're talking about. Early in life, not only is he not a Mason, he is telling Hiram to avoid the Masons because they're trying to hurt you. But by 1842, Joseph and most of the other prominent leaders in the church, most of the Quorum of the Twelve, they are all going to become Masons and again, I think the idea behind it is how can we how can we have a kind of ecumenical footprint? How can we reach out to the wider community? How can we demonstrate to people in Carthage and in Warsaw and in Springfield that we're not a bunch of weirdos? Of course we're weirdos because we're Mormons, but how can we how can we prove to them that we're just like other people? We well, masonry's an accepted form of civic involvement in all these other cities. So if we have a Masonic Lodge, then will that be enough? Well, it obviously isn't because the Latter-day Saints, you know, lodges have a lot of local control. And so Latter-day Saints, um, they move themselves up the ladder of masonry much more quickly than other Masonic lodges existed. Now you might be wondering um, if so many of the early church members were Masons, how come it seems like I don't know anybody who's a Mason? I mean, that's a pretty, it's a pretty, you know, one of the reasons why it seems so weird to me is, yeah, I've met like three people that are Masons and two of them were weird and one of them was a member. You know I mean? That's just not very common. Well, there's a reason behind that. When the, first of all, while they're still in Nauvoo, amidst the other anti-Mormon things that are going on, like the repeal of the Nauvoo Charter, the violence against the Latter-day Saints, amidst all of that, the other Masonic lodges, the, ma- the main lodge uh, in, in Illinois, they decide that the Latter-day Saints are not using Masonic uh, rights and privileges appropriately. Either they're advancing people too quickly, they are sharing these signs or things outside of Masonry like they're not supposed to. And so they actually have their lodge revoked from them. So their last experience with Masonry while they're in Nauvoo is, is less good. And then they will flee the country and go to Utah. So... Since their last experience with masonry was negative, they don't immediately try to... Uh, in fact, one thing that I think is interesting is that because masons are supposed to have this brotherhood, they're supposed to come to each other's defense. They're supposed to uh, look out for one another. And and you know that's what you pledged. And, and I think Latter-day Saints felt in some way very cheated by the fact that some of the people that were trying to kill them were fellow Masons. I mean, if if part of what we pledge to one another is that we'll defend one another, and you're also burning my house down and shooting at me, it becomes less as though you're keeping your pledge. It seems 
you know, maybe you're not as you burn my house down. So when they get to Utah Territory, when they, well, when Utah Territory is established in 1850, they don't recreate a lodge. And there isn't any real Masonic movement until the army is in Utah. When Johnson's army invades during the Utah War, they get there in 1858, some of the soldiers want to create a temporary, you know, Masonic lodge. And, 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 they get permission to do that. Now it's only going to be super temporary because then they're going to leave um, with the outbreak of the Civil War. But at the end of the Civil War, again, the soldiers stationed in Utah are going to be part of propelling the creation of a lodge in Utah. Now, I said at the outset that one of the only requirements of being a Mason is you have to believe in God. You, you you can be you know you know ostensibly you can be Jewish and and, and a Mason although there was all kinds of anti-Semitic actions against uh, uh, Jews from Masonic lodges in the past but you know again ostensibly you could be you could you know uh, be Muslim you could be Catholic anyone as long as you believe in God and they're using the Old Testament as as their template for their rites and their rituals except in Utah. When the Masonic Lodge is formed in Utah, it is formed with a very specific provision that no Mormons are allowed to join the Lodge. They then later expand that prohibition to that no Mormons are even allowed to visit the Lodge. In Utah, the Masonic Lodge in Salt Lake City is actually going to become the focus of the anti-Mormon political party that was created. Um, I, I really need people to not read into this. I'm going to tell you the name of that party, but I need you, I need you to remember that I'm talking about something from the 19th century. What do you think the name of the party is, Richard? Um, I'm going to go ahead and say the Democratic Party. Nope, nope. It's it's actually worse than that. <laughs> for for overreactions of someone listening, they call their party the Liberal Party. Yeah. So if you've ever wondered why the term liberal is especially pejorative for some people in Utah, you have a long history of it. The Liberal Party is made up of almost entirely of excommunicated Latter-day Saints and the few non-Latter-day Saints living in Utah Territory. It's less than 10% of the population of the territory. But they are angling to control the whole territory on the basis that Mormons shouldn't have the right to serve on juries. They shouldn't have the right to vote. They shouldn't have the right, I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. And again, surrounding anti-polygamy stuff as well. So the liberal party will actually hold some of its party, you know, functions at the Masonic Hall in, in Salt Lake City. So, so Masonry and anti-Mormonism are actually merged together in Utah territory for decades. It, 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 the Masonic Hall is seen as, you know, the, the headquarters of anti-Mormon work. Again, I'm not, I'm not meaning to say this about any current Mason. Okay. So if you're a Mason right now and you're really upset that that's the history of Masonry in although, Utah. Although if he's a Mason, he's really upset, you know, maybe, maybe he's upset because you're like, you're nailing it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah, it's like super upset. Like, Why did you tell anyone that we hated Mormons the way we did? Of course we hated them, but we don't want people to know that we hate them. And, and what does that mean? Look, Masonry is a fraternal organization. It is passed down from father to son and father to son, father to son. That's often how it gets passed. Well, in Utah, you had essentially a 70-year gap where not only were you not passing masonry down father to son, masons were seen as part of the wider, quote-unquote, Gentile effort to destroy the church. And so, and, and look, it's, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, you know what? It seems like they wouldn't allow any Mormons to join their group. No, it's in the, they voted. Mormons can't be a part of the Masonic Lodge in Utah. So that, that they couldn't. That actually, by the way, was not actually repealed until 1986. There were Latter-day Saints who did join before then, but kind of like the extermination order in Missouri. We're, yeah, just gonna, right. we're just keeping on books just in case. No, anyway, <laughs> uh, just, just in case, just in case we need to come back at you and burn your house down, maybe steal your, your, your farm. Um, 
we're gonna do we're gonna do eventually a podcast on the violence in Missouri, but we we have to figure out how to do it. It yeah yeah we we it, it's gonna be explicit in nature as you as you read the affidavits. Of- yeah, our options are water it down so that you don't know what actually happened, and then we're fine. Some or, people did some things. Yeah, some people did some things, and uh, or put an e we might have to make an explicit podcast to describe all the the horrors that that took place or maybe we'll try to find a way to either way no 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 no. two options yeah yeah, yeah. either way uh we it's not going to be a podcast you want your children listening to much like this one that you yourself wish you hadn't listened to um but there wasn't a marker see what if we had a marker if you were so smart make your own podcast (laughs) by the way by the way we're going to be talking about masons you should stop listening right now um and so Utah today has the fewest per capita Masons of any state in in the Union. Why? Because for 70 years, it was essentially this anti-Mormon group. Um, uh, And even when they relax those issues, even even when they're no longer actively barring Latter-day Saints from joining the Masonic Lodge, as you might imagine, the damage is kind of already done. Now, this is a a very poor comparison, but I'm going to make it anyway because I do poor comparisons for a living. If tomorrow the, the, the KKK were to come out and say, hey, guess what? We feel bad about how racist we've been against blacks and immigrants over the past two centuries. So from now on, we're good with it. We're just we're just painting houses. Yeah. And, now and- now we're building orphanages, and David Duke is 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 our best friend. I mean, yeah, I mean, I know that's ridiculous, right? The KKK is this this horrendous hate group. My point is, if you were an African American, and tomorrow the KKK announced that they were going to no longer hate black people. Well, my guess is you wouldn't run out and join the KKK. You would still harbor some pretty negative sentiments towards this hate group that had uh, uh, slaughtered and persecuted black Americans for so many years. Obviously, what anti-Masons are doing to Mormons in Utah is not comparable in the sense of violence. Uh, sorry, what Masons are doing in, in Utah—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not comparable in the in the terms of violence, but it is comparable in the sense that generations of Latter Day Saints growing up in Utah, Masonry was synonymous with people who hate Mormons. So even when Masons decided, okay, we're finally gonna—it you know, seems like it's hard for us to grow here. Um, for you. Uh, our numbers aren't coming in very good on the top line, Jim. I'm wondering if maybe we allow the primary uh, population to be a part of it. We could have a chance. What, whatever the reason is behind it. I mean, hopefully they just came to the terms where like, you know what? I think it's wrong on an organization based on you can belong as long as you believe in God to say, except for these people who believe in the wrong God. Um, regardless of what that reason is, there was no rush of Latter-day Saints to join. Now, again, I know multiple Latter-day Saints who are, ma- who are Masons. But there's not very many. And again, statistically, they're the fewest in the country. Why? Well, because here there was this active suppression of the majority of the population being a part of it, and it was affiliated with anti, uh, anti-Mormonism. anti So one of the things that's going to seem odd to you as we discuss Masonry, especially if you happen to be a Latter-day Saint with roots in Utah or living in Utah, is you don't know it, but you actually have about a century of cultural animosity built up towards masonry. And I know your grandpa didn't sit you down and say, you should hate masons, but you probably never heard any positive thing about masons coming from your grandfather, coming from your great grandfather, because what did they learn from their father? That masons were trying to destroy the church. And, and, And so that was kind of handed down culturally. So what I want to do on our next podcast is we're going to approach the, the, the topic that I think most people, you know, wonder about masonry. Well, 
this is a, a nice, fascinating, not fascinating history that you've given. <laughs> I've fallen asleep four times. I fell asleep actually giving the history. So that that seems like that that'll be a big edit where all you hear is a snore in there. Um, but I think the question that many people have is that you've heard people denigrate Joseph and uh, things like temple ritual on the basis of its connection to masonry. What do they mean by that? Obviously, there's only so many things I'm going to be able to really talk about with that, but we can at least approach the subject in a, in a way that can help people understand, or actually, more likely, probably not help people understand, just like all the other podcasts. So thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.